Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr Bridget Scott and the focus of today's podcast is the recent developments in endometrial cancer research presented at SGO and ASCO 2023. This podcast has been sponsored by GSK. Joining me today are two experts in the field, Professor Brad Monk and Dr Rob Coleman, who are going to offer their perspectives on the most important research and the latest findings in endometrial cancer presented at SGO in March and ASCO in June 2023. Brad Monk is Professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and Creighton University School of Medicine, Phoenix, Arizona, and Director and Principal Investigator in Community Research Development, Honor Health, Scottsdale, Arizona. Professor Monk's research interests include the prevention and treatment of gynecological cancers. He was the first to report the activity of antivascular endothelial growth factor therapy in ovarian cancer, and his papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet Oncology have led to four FDA approvals of PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer. Professor Monk is a fellow of ACS, ACOG and ASCCP and is an active member of SGO, IGCS and ASCO. He has authored more than 350 peer-reviewed articles along with more than 30 book chapters dealing predominantly with the prevention and chemotherapy of gynaecological malignancies and patient quality of life. Professor Monk is Vice President and on the Board of Directors for the GOG Foundation and co-directs the GOG Partners Research Consortium. Rob Coleman is Chief Medical Officer at Fanium Group. Dr Coleman drives medical excellence across the organisation, expanding the company's engagement with other healthcare providers and key opinion leaders, providing clinical guidance to client deliverables and mentoring teams and individuals throughout Fanium Group. Prior to joining Vanium Group, Dr. Carmen was the Chief Scientific Officer for US Oncology Research and the Chief Medical Officer for Sarah Cannon Research Institute. Previously, he was Professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, serving as the Executive Director for Cancer Network Research and holding the Anne Reith Cox Chair in Gynecology and Vice Chairman, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Dr. Coleman has authored or co-authored more than 700 scientific publications, including 410 peer-reviewed articles and numerous book chapters. He is a co-director for GOG Partners and is on the board of directors for the GOG Foundation. He is the immediate past president of the IGCS. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of GSK or EMJ. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Brad Monk and Dr. Rob Coleman. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Good to be here, no question. Thank you. And on to the first question. Endometrial cancer is the most common gynecological malignancy in developed countries and often presents at an early stage. What are the main challenges in the diagnosis, disease staging, risk stratification and treatment of patients with endometrial cancer? Brad, would you like to start us off? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, there's this number floating out there that in the U.S. there are about 66,000 endometrial cancers. It's actually less because that number includes uterine sarcomas, uh, so maybe 59,000. Having said that, it will soon overtake ovarian cancer as the most lethal gynecologic cancer. 
the challenge in diagnosis is not to underestimate uh, uh, pelvic symptoms uh, and also uh, vaginal bleeding, which generally is postmenopausal, but abnormal vaginal bleeding in the premenopausal state should also be investigated, particularly over women with 35. And then ultimately, like all gynecologic cancers, we live in a biomarker world, personalized medicine. We have companion diagnostics uh, in cervical cancer, as you know. We have companion diagnostics in ovarian cancer, and now we have companion diagnostics in endometrial cancer. Companion diagnostic is a molecular test that informs the utilization of medication so that they can be given to the right patient in the right scenario. So my pleasure to be here. Um, we live in a, an ever-changing world. I always say that the, the only definitive trial is a negative one because it shows that the intervention doesn't work. But a positive trial asks more questions than it answers. And we have uh, a number of uh, positive trials, at least two phase three trials that were done by the GOG Foundation that Dr. Coleman and I serve uh, that uh, are changing the landscape. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, if I might add that's, uh, to that really great uh, description is that um, the uh, because of the in increased interest now of interrogating the tumor microenvironment in endometrial cancer, often as as mentioned now aligned with the with the companion diagnostic as it relates to immunotherapy for this disease, we're learning a lot more about this disease, and we've come away from this kind of uh, more uh, a clinically defined risk stratification and risk defined cohorts of patients that we've used for years and years and years to one that's much more precise and hopefully predictive for the new drugs that are coming. But this has this has uh, garnered this incredible enthusiasm for doing drug development uh, in endometrial cancer, and it has really provided some great opportunities for us to. Uh, to kind of continue to change the standard of care as we're going to talk about here. And it's not one disease, right? Just what you said. So right. if, you, if, it, if I was to pick one word to describe uterine corpus cancer, it's heterogeneity. And, yeah, and, and it's, sure. it's, a, it's a constellation of, of indications and diseases and prognosis. So good points. Thank you. Clearly, endometrial cancer is a complex and heterogeneous disease, as you're describing, but it sounds like there's been some, some great progress with the um, molecular profi profiling stratification to enable a, a, a going in the right direction towards personalizing treatment and improving patient outcomes. Is that sort of creating a lot of excitement in the community? Yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, the, you know, the idea here is that um, we've learned a lot more about the tumor microenvironment. So not only the tumor characteristics, but the tumor environment itself. To, uh, to help um, better risk stratify uh, our, our patients. So what are our expectations to a common treatment across all of endometrial cancer patients? We're seeing that there's this difference if we just, if we normalize what the therapy is. So the idea is, is to look at these individual characteristics and we've, we've, um, we've known about this for more than a decade as we've seen through the pure molecular classification of endometrial cancer where we, where we can define, divide these uh, general these tumors into general four kind of categories, uh, such as uh, poll E, the MSI high, DMMR, uh, or MS, um, MMR uh, uh, phenotypes, as well as the uh, high, the copy number high, 
what we what would be very similar to what we are expect to see in an ovarian cancer kind of population, and then the no specific mutational profile. And it's actually this last group that's becoming now even more expanded as we dig into whether whether there are defining characteristics for those specific tumors. So so this this idea that that this this disease that you we used to think of in just kind of a binary kind of way, now we're looking at it in a much more heterogeneous way, as, as Dr. Monk mentioned earlier, um, with the uh, with our increased knowledge about the tumor microenvironment. Yeah, so I get asked all the time. So, what are the standard of care biomarkers in a, a advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer mm-hmm. patient? And, and I, I basically say it's five things. And I'm you said them, but I'm going to list them five very very clearly. So, DMMR or MSI. Uh, and there's three ways to do that, IHC, next-gen sequencing, or PCR. Number two, poly mutations, which has to be at the genomic level. Three, P53, which you call copy number high. Four, HER2. I'm a, I'm a fan of the gastric sta- uh, HER2 assessment, although you could certainly use breast uh, uh, HER2 assessments. And then five, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, which are obviously copy number low. So DMMR, MSI, 2-pole, 3-P53, 4-HER2, and 5-ERPR. And, and then obviously histology matters, but not really. So uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's a good kickoff as we start talking about yeah. the tr- treatment and the opportunities, not only prognostic, but also predictive in these settings. Mm-hmm. Progression-free survival results from two phase three randomized control trials evaluating first-line immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy in patients with advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer, the RUBY with dostalimib and the NRG-GY018 with pembrolizumab created a buzz at SGO that continued at ASCO this year. Can you guide us through these results and explain their importance? Rob? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the importance is clear. Uh, and we talked about this just, just in, the, in the last segments about, you know, what is the impact of biomarker um, uh, classification and how that might relate to predictive outcomes. We've known for a long time, not only uh, across multiple tumor types, but in endometrial cancer specifically, that the uh, profile of certain types of endometrial cancers, such as those that carry a deficiency uh, or a, a defect in the MMR uh, proteins or have MSI high type of um, signature, but through testing, that these represented uh, in a tumor microenvironment, which was considered immune um, rich for uh, inhibition of a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor. So this, this connection that we've had between this biomarker and this disease, this specific type of disease, provided the, ground, the groundwork for a trial that was looking at the evaluation of incorporating this into an earlier line of therapy in combination with chemotherapy. And so we have these two trials that have had individually demonstrated that the there was objective responses with the use of dostarlimab and pembrolizumab as single agents in patients whose tumors were defined by their MMR status and their or MSI, and had object and they had these objective responses. So we added them to chemotherapy, which would be would have been considered the standard of care in this cohort of patients. And we can go through the individual eligibility criteria, but I wanted to just generalize to say um, to answer your question that we had this. This, this concept of moving this into a way to redefine the primary standard of care based on a predictive biomarker that we had strong evidence should work. And so these two trials were constructed to evaluate that outcome 
predominantly on progression-free survival. And the trials were designed a little bit differently, but they both came to the, a similar conclusion, particularly in the patient population that we felt was going to be most reflective of that predictive biomarker, which was the, the, MM, the MMR status and the M, or MSI status. Brad, what do you think? Um... So uh, let, 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 let's define the standard of care first and what, why, why GY018 and why Ruby changed that. And again, the standard of care for over a decade was carboplatin paclitaxel based on GOG209 published by David mm -hmm. Miller, uh, as I said, a decade ago. Um, and then in the second line, again, just what you said, Garnet led to FDA approval of Zostarlimab, both in the U.S. and the U.S. as a single agent in MSI tumors. And Keynote 158 did the same for pembrolizumab. And then you created the scientific background of these two studies, uh, but they were very different, which is also what you said. And I'm going to point out how they were different. So Ruby enrolled 494 patients, uh, 122 of whom were MSI high, so 24.7%. And the idea was to look at the MSI DMMR subset first, and then ultimately an intent to treat analysis. Uh, on the other hand, GY018 looked at the same two populations, but separately, enrolled 819 patients in the DMMR subset and 225 in the uh, PMR, excuse me, 819 total patients, 225 DMMR, 591 uh, PMMR. So, so Rob, tell us, tell us a little bit about the differences in the outcomes whether it be Ruby or, or GY018, sort of in the hazard ratios uh, in those two subsets and, and, and how they're similar, but also how they're different. Yeah, well, the main thing in the, in the, in the, uh, in the biomarker positive, or what I would consider the biomarker aligned, uh, predictive biomarker subgroups, which would be the DMMR MSI high cohorts, both of these trials demonstrated a substantial treatment effect. And remember, the hazard ratios themselves basically represent the delta between the two curves. So depending on the patient population going in, the actual hazard ratio magnitude can vary based on how much of an effect that, that the prognostic components of those are. But overall, in this, in this particular um, study, the hazard ratios were very, very similar between these two cohorts with respect to that DMR population. Now, what was different about GY018 and, and Ruby was in the statistical analytical plan for how uh, the PMMR population was evaluated. In the Ruby study, as you mentioned, the primary endpoints were initially in the, in the, in the uh, MSI high P DMMR population with all of the alpha passed to the intent to treat population if that was positive, which it was. And, and, and in, the, um, uh, in the intent to treat population, we saw again as a as a as a has as a um, analytical endpoint that that was a positive um, effect effect size. What was different in the uh, in in the GY018 trial was that fully analytical evaluation of the uh, MMRP population was done, which also suggested a benefit. Now, what these with respect to these trials um, as outcome parameters. One of us, the factors that we're most interested in, I think, in, in, in the context of immunotherapy is overall survival, which was a primary endpoint for the RUBY trial uh, and uh, has yet to be um, uh, definitively uh, uh, enrolled or mature enough to evaluate in the uh, GY018. So very, um, very significant effects um, uh, that were seen in those biomarker-defined populations 
uh, with uh, in with an intent to treat population hazard ratio of around 0.64 in um, uh, in in the uh, Ruby trial, uh, and uh, this uh, uh, you know uh, it shows you know again the consistent and strong effect across um, these uh, two studies for particularly the biomarker uh, restricted population, which was similarly assessed in both trials. Yeah, you know, what are the, some of the differences, which in, in my mind are glaring, is the data maturity. So if, yeah, it, right? definitely, yeah. so if you look at the data maturity in Ruby, it was you know, more than 25 months. The data maturity mm -hmm. in, again, the two cohorts in GY018 was 12 months for the DMMR and 7.9 months for the PMMR. So less than mm -hmm. half. And so the PFS endpoint in GY018 should be viewed as interim. Uh, the PFS for Ruby should be viewed as final. Now, what struck me was, is that uh, GSK, uh, the, the sponsor of Ruby, only filed in the DMMR subset. Uh, and, and maybe it's mm -hmm. because the PMMR hazard ratio, uh, again, which was not analytic, but was you know, subtracted from the intent to treat. It was the rest right. of the patients was 0.76. Uh, I get mm -hmm. it, the interim analysis after short follow-up in GY018 is 0.54. So they filed in the in the DMMR subset, and I think all of at least our U.S. Uh, listeners realize that it was FDA approved on July 31st. And um, uh, you're right; I think that you know as the survival matures, that there will be an opportunity in the all-comer population. Uh, the DMMR subset for Ruby is under consideration by European regulators. This is why it matters, though. You'd say, well, of course it got FDA approved with a hazard ratio of 0.28, 0.29. Yeah, but what is the indication? So is the mm -hmm. indication just endometrial carcinoma or is it carcinosarcoma or does it include some non-measurable adjuvant patients or mm -hmm. is it only recurrent patients who recur after six months of carboplatin paclitaxel? And the answer is yes. And the answer mm -hmm. is yes. So if, if a patient was high-risk histology in 3C1, okay, clear cell, mm -hmm. serous, yeah. and, and was DMMR, uh, she was eligible. Mm -hmm. And all mm -hmm. 3C2 and stage 4s, even if it was resected, were eligible. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. half of the patients in Ruby, half exactly, uh, was uh, 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 primary uh, advanced stage, uh, which mm -hmm. again can be adjuvant. Uh, and then That's right. half were ultimately in the recurrent setting as long as it was over six months. Did, did that surprise you, Rob, that, that they sort of encroached on the adjuvant space, which is being yeah. studied in, let's say, B21 or others? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that that's it. I think that's um, it's, it's um, I, I, I don't know if I want to use the word encroached, <laughs> but I do think. <laughs> overlapped, overlapped, overlapped. Right, yeah. But I do. But I do think what they were trying to do, and I think this is something we'll, we'll interrogate more as time goes on, is to make sure that the risk stratifications that were put into the trial, um, um, you know, do are not driving the results. Right. So, so one of the reasons we do stratification uh, is that we want to make sure that there's balance between the treatment arms in, uh, we want to ensure that there's balance in the treatment arms of the study for those potential risk stratifications, which is why I led with this idea of comparing the hazard ratio quotients, you know, yeah. across the trials, <clears throat> is that it really depends on, on whether or not the patient populations are comparable and that there's equal treatment effect 
uh, within those stratification variables. So to your point, if we expect that, let's say that uh, a non-measurable stage uh, three patient who was entered onto the trial actually has a better outcome with immunotherapy, it could actually affect the hazard ratio for that specific trial if it wasn't actually similarly controlled in the other trial. Right. So those are the kind of things that need to be kind of sorted through. But you're absolutely right. I think is you know is, is you you want to define a population that's broad enough to apply to our patients, mm-hmm. but you also want to make sure that you're not um, potentially over-interpreting in, in particular subgroups that may not may or may not have benefit as much. So smart, and and I like it because yeah. just what you said, it gives us lots of options as physicians, right? Mm-hmm. And but yep. I think it was homogeneous enough that it gave a definitive result uh, in the yeah. DMMR. So so. So to your point, so PFS unprecedented in Ruby in the DMMR mm-hmm. subset, OS 37% maturity, best looking good. It won't be analytic because the OS analy- analysis will be in the intent to treat. The mm-hmm. ORR, so there were 71% of the patients had measurable disease. Measurable. And, and those patients had an increase in response rate. And an increase in DOR and a third of the responses were ERs, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Which is super and, and so now yeah. you have PFS, you have OS, you have ORR and duration of response. And, and that's why it got mm-hmm. approved. And that's why I'm excited to use it. And I've already started to use it in the mm-hmm. DMMR subset. It, it, let me, let me yeah. yeah, one thing I wanted to, you know, one thing is that you, we were talking about differences to compare and contrast. So one of the differences. Uh, that we saw between the two trials was whether or not patients who had had prior external radiation were allowed. So they were allowed, obviously, in the Ruby trial. They weren't not so much in the uh, in the GY018, um, or at least was stratified for uh, in the GY018. Do you think that that could have um, influenced outcomes? I don't. And and the, and let me let me throw another variable in there. Is that you know we always we know in cervical cancer, for instance, that disease occurring within a radiated field. It's much more difficult to treat than it is than and responses are different than we see of patients who have recurrence outside the radiated field. Do you think that that could have uh, influenced any of the results in uh, in, in these two trials? I, I don't, and I and I don't recall whether it was a stratification in GY zero one eight, but it was definitely in Ruby. It wasn't. It was yeah. in Ruby. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't. I, I I really don't think. I, I think the real question. Let, let, let me just use an analogy. Remember when Bevacizumab came out, GOG 218, we're all so excited about it. We did, remember we did the intraperitoneal chemotherapy trial and it was required because it was fantastic. Yep. And we did the weekly mm-hmm. and, and it was, you know, such a great opportunity. And then we sort of came back to earth, so to speak, became more balanced. <laughs> and now, now we use it in, in certain patients. I think that was sort of the NCCNs, not that I can speak for them, excitement that, oh, we're going to recommend, you know, chemo checkpoint with checkpoint as a monotherapy in the maintenance phase and all comers. Are we coming back mm-hmm. to earth now? Do we, do we, are we sort of becoming less enthusiastic about the PMMR subset, especially since it's now not FDA approved? Or do you think the NCCN is right in recommending it for an all comer population? Very loaded question, by the way. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, yeah, and you know how I feel about this is that you know at least for GY zero one eight, although it's 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 still data that has to mature. You know that was an it was a primary analytical endpoint, so mm-hmm. you know it was controlled for the prognostic factors. You know, obviously it did include a little broader patient population, um, but you know it it was it had a hazard ratio that we would have otherwise would have been raising our arms about, right? Mm-hmm. So you know it, it's it's that 
you know, we become, I don't know, it's like almost like we become desensitized to that. But a hazard ratio of, uh, of uh, 0.54 in that patient population in an analytical endpoint is a strong treatment effect. But, you know, one of the things that we all want to see is consistency of results. And what we saw in the Ruby trial for that for that subtracted population, you know, not mm-hmm. not um, not an analytical endpoint, we didn't see the same degree of magnitude. And then it starts to raise us questions. And the other piece of this is is when we look at the PMMR cohort, there are some elements in there that provide opportunity to potentially improve upon that. For instance, um, yes. uh, you know, looking at the at the P53 wild type cohort is maybe there's an opportunity here. Um, that we may be able to provide even better results for that potential cohort. So, so I do believe that you know if you take it at face value, um, if you have the, the GY018 um, and Ruby together, so GY018, both the analytical cohorts were positive. So and in G, and in Ruby, the overall analytical endpoint for ITT was positive. So um, I, I understand the reason for why that was done, but I do believe that there is some caution as more data uh, matures for looking at this, uh, you know, from the regulatory standpoint, whether or not this is a consistent enough effect to uh, encourage an FDA global approval for ITT. And okay, I think ultimately we'll see that with the, uh, with the overall survival data. Yeah, again, brilliant points. As you know, in the second line, PMMR, it's Pembrolimatinib. So there might mm-hmm. be an opportunity in the front line now in the PMMR to overcome what I would call a marginal benefit with the addition of an anti-angiogenic doesn't have to be a TKI, as you know, in other solid tumors, you can use bevacizumab, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Does it add pause to you, though, that although it was analytic in the PMMR subset in GY018, that the PFS maturity was only 38% in the 7.9 month? Uh, I mean, oh, yeah. 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 I think, and you're, and you're spot on, you know, and if, again, if you look at the, if you look at the curves themselves, that there is a lot of sensory exactly. early on, which could have a tremendous effect on the on the ultimate shape of the curves. Now, one thing we could say is that as the data mature, since there is a potential treatment effect with the uh, IO in that uh, with the, with Pembro in that uh, in that setting, we may see a um, that the censoring rates for uh, the uh, experimental arm will be you know higher than in the control arm. And so the curves may actually split more. Mm-hmm. So, but it does give me, you asked me the question, does it give me pause? Yes. Yep. The answer to that is yes. And we want, that's why we like to see mature results uh, presented so that we can have confidence in uh, what, what the uh, longer term follow-up will share. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the toxicity just to be fair and balanced for mm-hmm. uh, both of these studies uh, uh, showed no new safety signals, which is important. I'm struck by that it didn't get in the way of the chemotherapy, right? So the the chemotherapy, right? Because the chemotherapy intensity uh, was performed. At what Mm -hmm. point would you add checkpoint in a DMMR patient? Now it's FDA approved. uh, Mm -hmm. That's already started chemotherapy, but didn't have checkpoint. So let's say, so it got approved and now it's reimbursed and the patient's had two, three, four, five, maybe just in the maintenance. At what point... Do you do you add checkpoint even though it's not technically on study, uh, um, or, yeah, or do you yeah. say, look, I can give it, you know, if 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 she recurs on label, what's the yeah. threshold? Yeah, no, yeah. Well, I mean, I we I wish we knew. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. If, if, yeah, I mean, I I don't know the answer to that question. I think that um, 
that you know the fact that uh, that if a patient goes through, let's say they go through all their chemotherapy, they're done, and now they want a maintenance strategy with just an immune checkpoint inhibitor. You can make a case. I know it. That if there's yeah, if there's some, if you know there's you believe there's something there to treat because as single agents, both these drugs do work this way. So right. you can make a case for it. I think you could easily justify it. What I don't, what I think is interesting about the PFS curves is that both studies basically the they overlap during the chemo IO they component, mm -hmm. and then they separate right. And of course, our this L-shaped curve that we tend to see in biomarker. Um, aligned uh, therapies with immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, you know, we saw it here again, and it makes you wonder whether whether or not you can catch up, as you just mentioned, or is, it, or is there some significant immune education that's required during the chemotherapy, but just not, it wasn't long enough to see that those curves separated. Well, I don't, I don't it's hard, know. It's hard, hard to know. Another key difference. Yeah, thanks we, for asking me an unanswerable I, I, question. I always ask. Listen, if it was answerable, I would answer it myself. You would why, why, why would I ask you an easy question and you ask me hard questions, so it's touche. One, one of the other differences in GY018 there's crossover, so the study is stopped, mm. right? Ruby, yep. because of the substantial European enrollment, will continue to enroll and we'll get more survival information. Survival will be looked at in GY018, but the study is technically stopped because it's where stopped it, the US, where the majority of patients were enrolled, if you're MSI high, you get it at the time of recurrence as per the mm -hmm. Pembrol label, and if you're not, you get Pembrol and Vatinib as the mm -hmm. 309 keynote 775 label. So Bridges hard. We, we sort of got into it there, um, but I think we've sort of addressed those two pivotal studies um, and, and their recent FDA approval on July 31st and some of the considerations with guidelines and toxicity. So that was really fun, bud. Yeah, that was, absolutely. That, that was a beautiful discussion. Such a pleasure to hear it. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds like these two key trials have answered They've started answering the questions, but they're raising a, an awful lot more. And in terms of sort of defining what treatments for specific populations and um, where the overall survival results are going to take us, um, just uh, the wonderful news being there's no new safety signals, of course. Um, but yeah, it's uh, interesting how many questions it's raising and, and in terms of defining, because it's, as you said, a heterogeneous disease and every patient needs to be considered separately. Fantastic. Fascinating. You'll see at the major meetings that uh, additional endpoints will be analyzed. Um, mm -hmm. Specifically for Ruby, um, there was a high-level interrogation of the patient-reported outcomes. Um, uh, and that's really important because it's not about changing a CAT scan. It's about changing a life. And you yes. could see that the patients numerically seem to live better, as well as a trend towards living longer. Um, yes. So that was very exciting. The other thing yes. that was presented at ASCO is that the PFS endpoint, according to Resist 1.1, 1 .1, uh, as well, or uh, death, obviously, was according to the investigators. So there was a blind mm -hmm. and independent central review to just to, to and, and of course it was the same, but it, it added more yeah. confidence to the investigator uh, resist PFS endpoint. So um, very exciting. And you'll see more. You'll you'll go to ESGO yeah. and ESMO and IGCS and uh, SGO it, next just, year. Just it it just keeps it just keeps because uh, the data are maturing, right? So the data right. are maturing, and we have additional endpoints. So it'll be a combination of both. It's the start of a new story, really, isn't it? The mm -hmm. results from these two studies, and you made such mm -hmm. an interesting point about and an important point about patient quality of life. Of course, you want to prolong life, but it has to be 
a quality life for the patients. So that's such exactly. an important point. Yes, absolutely. I, um, I just want to say one other thing. So since you brought it up at ESGO uh, in Istanbul, it's already uh, on the online. Dr. Dana Chase, who's the second author of Ruby, will present what's called a Q-twist analysis for Ruby. So, mm. so there are two things that can happen when you get treated for cancer. Number one, you can have side effects, bad. Number two, your cancer can come back, bad. So, right. so what is the time where neither of those things happen? Where you're without disease recurrence? and without symptoms. And that's a sophisticated analysis that will be presented for Ruby at the next meeting, uh, which is ESGO in, in Istanbul. So I'm really excited to hear that. Wonderful. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you, you brought that up because you know we did a similar exercise when the PARP inhibitors that's came right. out and we spent a lot of time trying to adjust the, the benefit. And so what's neat about this, this uh, the Q-twist or the QA-twist um, is that it allows us to to subtract out the negativity right. of the trial and to see how much is left over positive. What was really interesting with these trials is that, you know, you see negativity in both the control arm right. and in the experimental arm. So it's, it's not, so when you put those together and you compare, you can see the delta, the difference between those, when those factors are considered the, of the treatment effect. And it gives us, I get even more confidence of how robust the results that, uh, that we see with these, with these uh, interventions. Value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are your thoughts on the implications of the results of these trials on second-line care in patients with endometrial cancer? Brad, do you want to start us off? Yeah, thank you, Bridget. I'm having so much fun. Um, I learn. Thanks, Rob. You teach me every time we're together. Um, what we're thank doing, you. though, is we're creating a second-line population that is checkpoint exposed. We've never had that before. And there's all this discussion that checkpoint inhibitors work after checkpoint inhibitors. Not really. I get it. If they didn't progress on it and it's been a long time, you can try it. But the majority of patients, that will be eliminated. I, I also don't think that we'll ever really test that if you can resensitize a patient by adding a, a, an anti-VEGF uh, uh, to the checkpoint inhibitor and a prior checkpoint exposed. So now what do we do? Well, that's easy, right? It is because we have a whole new class of agents called antibody drug conjugates. Um, in fact, Rob, why don't you tell us about the HER2 data that was presented at ASCO because I'm getting so fired up over ABC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you know, and, and this is, it continues the story as we've learned uh, to see a number of different um, ADCs, antibody drug conjugates that have been um, evaluated in endometrial cancer. Obviously at the, at ASCO this year, um, Dr. Fundamerick um, uh, Bernstein um, re reported on the results of the pandestomy uh, trial that was um, looking at the uh, TDXD, um, uh, uh, the uh, trastuzumab drugs, TCAN uh, trial, uh, which was uh, across multiple different tumor types. So this was a, a basket trial um, that included a number of different histologies uh, and tumor uh, primaries. And of course, we were very interested in the mitral population uh, because the efficacy uh, uh, aligns with, you know, a history that a narrative that we've actually come to um, to to use in our treatment paradigm based on relatively thin, uh, relatively uh, I, I guess um, limited data, and that's the the HER2 amplification or HER2 amplified in mitral cancer, which is another one of those subgroups that we mentioned early on. Uh, of, a, of the molecular phenotype of endometrial cancer. So we know that um, trastuzumab is a single agent um, added 
uh, to chemotherapy and continuous maintenance seems to have some efficacy in untreated patients, particularly in untreated patients with this amplified um, tumor. What we learned um, uh, in, uh, in, 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 at ASCO uh, as we expanded this data looking at DDXD uh, is that, first of all, we could expand the patient population with HER2 abnormalities. So now using immunohistochemistry expression data, not just the amplified amplification, but expression data, uh, that, that patients that um, uh, carried um, at least some um, uh, positive one plus uh, 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 expression had objective response rates, uh, which uh, were much better than we expected with chemotherapy. Uh, and, and we looked at this across a number of different cuts of the data, but around 45 to 50% response rates uh, uh, in you know with patients with measurable disease with recurrent um, HER2 positive endometrial cancer. So this was very exciting to us. Um, and as I mentioned, it does continue a narrative because we have looked at um, uh, at other uh, uh, antibody drug conjugates targeting this uh, particular um, component, uh, uh, it, including uh, trastuzumab, duocarbazine, carmazine, uh, that again, showing objective response rates in cohorts of patients who carry, um, uh, uh, in that case, a HER2, HER2 2 plus positive, uh, in, uh, or greater uh, immunotherapy cancer. So a lot of excitement there. Um, this brings us, uh, you know, into another really active uh, treatment and one that we are aggressively pursuing uh, to move into uh, uh, definitive studies in the second line setting and earlier. Yeah, that's great, right? So again, we're creating a population of checkpoint exposed. That's good because checkpoints work, particularly in the DMMR subset. But now, obviously, HER2 antibody drug conjugates betrothed. So we saw sacituzumab, um, and uh, probably for the sake of time, we don't need to get into that, but those studies will launch, if not sacituzumab, but other trope antibodies. And then also we have molecules that can interact in the P53 wild type and mutated setting. So as you know, in the, in the P53 mutated setting, which is generally serous, uh, uh, copy number high, uh, PMMR, you know, we have WE1, and we're excited about about adavosertib and xenosertib. Um, uh, adavosertib has been discontinued, but um, we still have that, that, another option. And then the P53 wild type, we have maintenance. Yeah, naptomadolin, as you know, and cell and XOR. So the way I would look at it, you get carboplatin paclitaxel checkpoint, and then based on the P53 status and the antibody drug conjugate target, you sort of triage moving forward. And if you're P53 wild type, or as you say, no particular molecular signature, get carboplatin paclitaxel again. If you respond, then get nabdomadolin or selenexor according to those studies. So um, the, the future is bright. We'll keep pushing, but it's, it, it's really uh, dependent on uh, uh, the international collaboration. And I'm so happy that, that the NGOT and the GOG collaboration continues to get stronger under your leadership, Rob. Yeah, no, thank you. You as well. You know, and I think you, you mentioned it early on. We didn't get a chance to spend much time on it, but obviously this 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 in a, this no specific molecular uh, mutational profile also includes the patients that would be good candidates for endocrine therapy. And boy, that's another field that we're revisiting. <laughs> we started there, right? That was our only approved drug for many years. Right. Um, it was endocrine-based therapy. And now with the uh, rollout of the CDK4-6 inhibitors, and our, our better understanding of, uh, of how the estrogen uh, receptor signaling plays a, a role. Uh, we've got a number of new options here, um, uh, including 
um, uh, mTOR inhibitors as, as well, uh, looking at a way to, to, to uh, expand and exploit uh, endocrine signaling in this disease, which is, as you know, in a subgroup has, in, uh, is richly defined by endocrine signaling. Selective estrogen receptor degraders, SIRDs. So, yep, a lot of good mm -hmm. stuff. All right, Bridget, mm -hmm. I, think, I think we've exhausted this topic, <laughs> but so much fun. <laughs> is an exciting topic. I mean, the fact that there's been such a huge breakthrough in the first line setting with the, the, the results from the last few trials, of course, that domino effect impacts the second line. What we thought was right for second line is now all going to change, I assume, because we don't have the information, as you say, about um, so many more trials are needed to work out what the optimal second line treatment should be on those who've had chemotherapy and immunotherapy in first line. That's just the beginning of the, a new story, isn't it, for second-line treatment? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Which will be our, our, our you know, our exploration field until, and then ultimately potentially find new places to put it in the frontline setting. Fantastic. And making the patient who has a PMMR molecular signature do better because the, yes. better. the benefit yes. is, is good, but it's not good enough. PMMR yes, isn't good enough either because there still yes. are some, some failures, but it's a very high bar. Yes. Right. Yes. We want we want the PMMR patients to be getting the same sort of improvement that the DMMR patients are receiving, don't mm -hmm. we? Yes. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Um, management of immune-related adverse events related to immunotherapy-based treatment regimens is a key topic of discussion. What are the current recommendations for management of these adverse events? Rob, would you like to have a stab at that? Yeah, we uh, we you know we talked a little bit about this, and we with specifically that related to the Ruby and GY018 trials because these were captured um, in in these trials. So both the starlimumab and pembrolizumab have a very robust um, uh, toxicity uh, portfolio as single agents, and obviously uh, when we were combining it with chemotherapy and including it for a duration of the maintenance setting, we basically were looking to see if there were any new signals. And as uh, um, Brad mentioned, we really didn't see anything new. That we did that we we expected to see. So the the profile of of toxicity that we would expect to see with the new checkpoint inhibitors were recapitulated in the studies, um, and the management of those uh, would align with how we would manage pembrolizumab and dostarlimumab toxicities uh, as as single agents. So uh, fortunately, they're not um, uh, uh, frequent. Um, they were not. They did not enter, um, uh, have a higher rate of discontinuation that we might expect. But we would follow the same guidelines across the, the kind of the spectrum of IO-related or immune checkpoint inhibitor-related uh, adverse events that we see, such as thyroid um, and, and GI toxicity, uh, endocrine toxicities, lung. We follow basically the same guidelines. So there was nothing new that we needed to, to be alerted for uh, with respect to these, uh, to these therapies. So in which case, um, introducing these new regimens will not be delayed by a need to educate about any different kinds of um, addressing toxicity or toxicity issues then. It's right. All, there was the information that's right. nothing, yeah. nothing new popped up there that we would say that, hey, in, when you give a chemotherapy, you see more of something. And we did not see that. Brilliant. Very, very nice. Checkpoint inhibitors were approved in endometrial cancer 2017 and cervical cancer 2018. So we've been doing this for five or six years. Uh, we still have more to learn. Don't get me wrong, but uh, we're, we're way down the life cycle road here. Excellent. Yes. And of course, if the um, if the consultants are very um, up to date and understanding of the issues, the uh, toxicity issues, then of course they can 
relay their information and educate their patients about it and hopefully lead to better sort of tolerance of any and toxicity that there is. On to our final question, what does the future of the management of patients with endometrial cancer look like? Which clinical trials are needed and which advancements in research would you like to see? Rob, would you start us off? Yeah, I think that the future of endometrial cancer management, it will be continually iteratively changed by our understanding of how uh, the tumor microenvironment um, is, a, is impacted and affected in a serial way. So I mean that, that we have uh, our clinical trials right now look at a single point of intervention in time. But what happens downstream from that intervention and how the tumor microenvironment actually adapts to it, um, uh, all of the cells of the immune environment, not just the tumor cells, but vasculature, immune cells, the stroma, uh, how these, uh, uh, how these uh, individual cells react to the interrogations and how we can deal with tumor heterogeneity are really the gaps of the future. As, these, as, as we learn more, we develop therapies targeted towards these, and we will then um, uh, find these results and try to move them earlier into our lines of therapy through well-conducted uh, clinical trials that are informed actually by these findings. So I think that the, the future is very bright uh, for this uh, disease class um, because we have um, been able to bring our findings um, uh, of the molecular biology of this disease into a treatment situation and now understanding what that treatment does to the tumor over time in serially assessed uh, ways uh, will ultimately define you know, the future of this disease for, for therapy. Yeah, I, I think we have some execution though to do. So we do have some results already um, and um, we're still in the early adoption phase. Um, we need to understand what the appropriate patient is for checkpoint inhibitor as a single agent, uh, plus lenvatinib in combination or plus chemotherapy in combination and continued in maintenance as per Ruby and GY018. So I think execution is really important um, the studies get us to the doorstep, but we need to walk through the door and, and we need to enjoy, enjoy the, uh, the, the, the habitat, if you will. Um, biomarkers are still not widespread either. So, you know, we, I started, oh, you got to do these five biomarkers, but I think that's still done in the minority of patients. And then in addition to what you said, Rob, I think we're interested in chemotherapy-free regimens. So uh, like Pembrolinvatinib and like other opportunities. So Again, it's, it's, it's foundational that we continue to enroll, and uh, we're, uh, we're still ambitious and still uh, have good science, um, but we got to push harder and um, stay focused. So I appreciate everyone's time today. And that concludes today's podcast. Thank you to Professor Brad Monk and Dr. Rob Coleman for joining us today and sharing their insights on the most important research and the latest findings in endometrial cancer presented at SGO and ASCO 2023 with all our audience. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMJ podcast very soon. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.